Hey everybody, this is CJ, and welcome to episode 91 of the Dangerous History Podcast. I am talking to you this time from the Silver Bullet, from my 2014 Silver Hyundai Accent hatchback, as I make my commute. This episode is going to be a a semi-freeform episode. It's going to be like most of my car episodes, one where I've only got a limited amount of notes and I'm somewhat off the reservation. So, bear with me. I hope my sound isn't too bad after some experimentation. I finally got a car recording uh, mobile podcasting rig that seems to get pretty decent sound. So hopefully it'll work well this time as it did the last time I did one of these. This episode is entitled Assassination Ruminations. And I'm going to be talking about Are all deaths of leaders and other prominent people suspicious? Should they be? How should we think about these things? Which ones look fishy? Which ones don't? And I want to preface a few things up front, and that would be things like, number one, I'm doing this from the car as I'm commuting. So cut me a little slack if I happen to make any minor little errors along the way. I'm trying not to, but, you know, nobody's perfect, especially when you're driving. Number two, and I would be saying this even if I was recording this from the comfort of a studio with a lot more notes in front of me, I am not claiming any of the things I'm saying here are definitive. I'm not claiming that I have the answers to some of the suspicious deaths. I'm just trying to raise some questions, point out a few things, and um, maybe encourage people to think a little bit more in certain ways about things. But I am certainly not saying I have the answers, the truth with the capital T about what's happened to uh, certain people who have died in office or other uh, celebrities or famous individuals who have died under at least somewhat suspicious circumstances. But before I get into that, I'm happy to report that I've had five individuals step up since my last episode to support the Dangerous History podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Big thanks go out to Bruce, to Ivanda, to Skip, to John, and to Flugi for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast over there at Patreon. I really appreciate that. Thank you, uh, all of you, very much for doing that. Remember, if you sign up to support the Dangerous History Podcast over at Patreon on a per-episode donation basis, if you donate for any amount per episode, I will thank you by name in the next show that I make after you sign up. And in addition, if you pledge at least a dollar per episode, and many listeners pledge more than that, in a few cases quite a bit more than that, Uh, But for just a minimum donation of $1 per episode, you'll have access to some special bonus uh, Dangerous History Podcast episodes over there. And I try to put one of those over there just for my uh, supporters at Patreon. About every four to six weeks, about every month to month and a half, I do an extra show, throw it over there, and it's only for those people who are helping out with at least a buck per episode. Can't find these episodes anywhere else. So if you're able to and you're not already doing so, I... Hope you'll consider supporting the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And remember, there are plenty of other ways you can help out the show as well. You can help spread the word. That that alone is a big help. Help me grow the audience. In addition, if you go to profcj.org slash donate, you'll see some other ways to support the show. You can do a, a PayPal donation. You can donate Bitcoin. You can also help out the show financially by buying stuff from Patreon through any of my affiliate links found throughout profcj.org. So anyway, 
on to the meat of the program, assassination ruminations. And again, this is kind of free form, not claiming any of these are like the last word on anything, just raising some questions and uh, making some suggestions about different ways we ought to think about these things. Mostly I'm going to be talking about assassinations of political leaders, especially presidents, simply because they're the most well-known and, at least in some cases, among the more interesting. But you could apply this also to um, at least some celebrity deaths in modern times. You can also apply it to uh, lesser politicians in some cases. Uh, You can apply it to political candidates who've died, either ones that we know for sure were assassinated or ones that have died under mysterious, mysterious circumstances. So... I think anytime you're looking at somebody powerful and or influential and important dying, you should always do due diligence of um, what may have happened here. It doesn't mean you automatically jump to conspiratorial conclusions. You don't want that to be your default position any more than you want your default position to be, I mindlessly believe what the government and the media say. If you're somebody who's curious about these things and wants to figure them out, you need to have an open mind, but not so open that any ridiculous theory that comes along immediately... Uh, you accept without question. It's just as bad to believe in wild, unsubstantiated theories as it is to believe whatever the people in, in authority tell you to. But in general, if someone dies and the circumstances are at least a little bit fishy, and there's some sort of a an, a power angle to it, like there's a political issue and uh, some some powerful individuals and interest groups are one way, and there's an influential political leader or, or social activist leader who's going the other way, and then the person who's going counter on that issue to at least what some of the establishment wants dies, and this is, the um, circumstances are at least a little bit suspicious, then I think it deserves looking into. Unfortunately... The further back you go in time, in general, the harder it's going to be to really definitively prove anything. Because you go back 70, 80, 100 years, and number one, fewer documents are likely to have survived the ravages of time than something that happened more recently. Not just documents, but other forms of evidence as well. In addition, they might simply be lost. In other words, they still exist. No one destroyed them. But, um... You know, no one knows where they went. They just got stuck in a box someplace and forever goes by and maybe they're never found. And sometimes I dream that, like, we'll suddenly accidentally discover documents that that clear up some of these questionable things, not just assassinations, but other weird things in history. There have been a few cases where, like, accidentally something gets found that was presumed lost and it opens up some things. Kind of the equivalent of Dead Sea Scrolls, I guess. So it would be awesome if one day some obscure storage unit in the middle of nowhere gets uh, opened up and like, holy crap, there's definitely authentic documents that tell you what really happened to Kennedy or whatever, right? But the further back something is in time, the more unlikely it becomes that there will be real solid answers. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible to get solid answers, and it certainly doesn't mean that you can't at least dig some stuff up that indicates whether it seems more or less likely that anything really fishy went on. Well, anyway, I'm going to gallop through the presidents who've been assassinated so far. I'm sorry, not not just assassinated, but who have died in office, excuse me, because there's a few presidents who've died in office 
that have officially been ruled natural causes where there's at least some question of what may or may not have really happened to them. So I'm going to run through these, and of course I'll spend a little bit more time on the ones where there's at least some question of what may have happened. So there have been four presidents who definitely, for sure, have been assassinated, have been killed by another person or persons. Um, In some cases, there's some question about who may have really done it and or who else that we don't know for sure about may have been involved. But regardless, there are four presidents that, no question, were assassinated. Those are Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, and Kennedy. And there have been others who've died in office, some of, no question, definitely natural causes, and some where it's a little bit debatable. So the first U.S. president to die in office was William Henry Harrison, member of the Whig Party, elected in 1840. This is the famous Tippecanoe and Tyler II election. Harrison was uh, known as Tippecanoe because this was the name of a battle at which he defeated, I believe, the Pawnee Indians. Tyler II referring to John Tyler, his vice president, his vice presidential uh, candidate, his running mate. He was president of the United States, Harrison was, for only about one month when he died of pneumonia. Now, the story is that he gave this long inaugural address outside on a bitter cold day, and he refused to wear really a proper overcoat and hat for such weather. And the story is that this is what caused him to start getting sick, and it eventually turned into pneumonia, and after only about a month in office, he died. Some modern medical people question whether cold weather can really, like, make you sick. But regardless, I don't think there's any question that pneumonia is what killed him. Whether it is like your mom or your grandma said that the cold weather is what caused it in the first place, or whether it's just, you know, he picked it up somewhere. Uh, Fact of the matter is that that's what killed him, pneumonia. Some sources indicate he really didn't get sick until a decent number of days after that cold inaugural address. But regardless, there really doesn't seem to be much that's uh, too questionable there. It's true that his vice president, John Tyler, upon becoming president, did cause a bit of a political uh, kerfluffle, I guess, for for lack of a better term. Of course, the centerpiece of the Whig Party's platform was restoring the National Bank, the one that Jackson had um, gotten rid of while he was president. And in the election of 1840... The Whigs not only elected a presidential candidate, but if I remember correctly, I think they took control of the Congress as well. And once they had their man in office, and all indications, as far as I know, are that Harrison would have happily gone along with Congress on reestablishing a national bank, but Harrison is, of course, dead before that can happen. Once John Tyler is sworn in, and he's, of course, the first vice president to become president on the death of, you know, a president before him, Once John Tyler is president, he then stuns his own party when the Whigs in Congress pass a bill to set up a new national bank, and he vetoes it. So so he shows a type of political independence that is quite rare in American presidents in office. And, of course, he gets kicked out of his own party after that. Now, there might be a theory to be made that anti-bank people perhaps poisoned William Henry Harrison in order to get John Tyler in there so that he would prevent the bank from being reestablished. There's motive there, but um, there are problems with it. Aside from the problem that there is 
no evidence that anything other but pneumonia killed Harrison. As far as I know, Tyler's willingness to stand against his own party on the bank issue was not known prior to the death of Harrison. So even if there were anti-bank people who were so drastically opposed to the bank that they'd be willing to do an assassination to block it, even taking for the sake of argument that there were such people, you have the problem of they wouldn't have known that Tyler wasn't just another solid party wig who'd go along with the bank no matter what. So anyway, I think we can pretty much move on from that one as being there's, there's really nothing fishy there that I've ever seen. Next president to die in office is another wig, another wig war hero. They only can elect a war hero. The Whig Party can only get a president in office by running a war hero and having the campaign mostly be about, hey, isn't this guy a great war hero, rather than about any substantive issues. But um, that's Zachary Taylor, who died in office in 1850, having been president for, I believe, a little bit over a year. He's not a well-known president, aside from being a hero of the uh, Mexican War. He was a Southern Whig, I believe from Virginia, and like pretty much all elite Southerners of that time period, he owned some slaves. And 1850, in the aftermath of the war with Mexico, is when things were really starting to heat up on the sectional issues, the centerpiece of which was the spread of slavery out west, whether slavery would be spread to any places out west in the new territories acquired from Mexico and um, some of the other, other territories out there as well, and then how, how would it be decided? Who would decide? for each given piece of territory, whether it would be open to slavery or not, as it was settled. 1850 is when California was getting ready to apply for statehood. Thanks to the, uh, the gold rush of 1848-1849, California's population had exploded uh, far faster than, than much of the rest of the West, and so it was quite quickly ready to become a state. And Californians wrote a constitution prohibiting slavery. And then when uh, this came before the Congress, there was a big hubbub, as there was during this time period. Almost any time a new Western territory was added, there'd be some kind of a problem over um, the balance of power in the Senate in particular. If you add one slave state or add one free state without adding one of the other kind, then you would upset the exact 50-50 balance in the U.S. Senate that existed at the time. The first time there had been a big hubbub about something like this was in regards to uh, Missouri back in 1820. Well, Henry Clay and some other top people in Congress at the time begin trying to work out some kind of a compromise deal to throw some bones to the pro-slavery people, to the anti-slavery people, and also to the people, generally northern Democrats, who favored what was called popular sovereignty, which is the idea that what should be done as far as whether or not slavery spreads to a territory out west is that the people in that territory should have some sort of a plebiscite on it, popular sovereignty. Let the people of a territory decide whether they want slavery in their territory or not. So anyway, there's, there's this attempt to create some sort of a, a series of acts that will result in compromise, some similarity to what had been done with Missouri decades earlier, trying to sort of make everybody at least a little bit okay with the whole thing. Now, President Taylor was sort of an unknown as far as this goes. He was kind of, a, I think, a little bit of a wild card and a dark horse, but he surprised everybody by, again, doing what American presidents really aren't supposed to do, which is exhibiting a true independent streak. 
turns out, even though he is a southerner and he's a slave owner, and therefore um, most of the southern politicians assumed he would just naturally favor slavery spreading into the southwest, or at least having it be possible for slavery to be spr- to be spread into some parts of the southwest, turns out he actually kind of took a stand against the spread of slavery into the southwest. His stand on this, as I understand it, is basically, no, there shouldn't be this big, complicated uh, series of compromises trying to throw bones to everybody, that uh, if California wanted to come into the Union as a free state, that should be that uh, done. So some powerful people in the Congress, especially in the Senate, who really wanted to pass this compromise for various reasons, uh, were, were not happy with President Taylor showing this independent streak. But then he died in the summer of 1850, and the man who took over his vice president, Millard Fillmore, who's one of the most empty suit presidents we've ever had, as far as I'm concerned, Millard Fillmore proved to be very, very pliable to just sort of being almost almost bossed around by Congress and happily went along with what became known as the Compromise of 1850, which did a, did a bunch of things. It let California in as a free state. It said that uh, Utah and New Mexico territories would have popular sovereignty to decide whether they would have slavery or not, I, basically leaving the door open to the possibility that they might have slavery. And then it also included a stricter fugitive slave law, which obviously was throwing a bone to pro-slavery interests. And then on the other on the other hand, it got rid of the slave trade, meaning, you know, the actual buying and selling of slaves in D.C. itself. Slavery remained legal in D.C. right up into the Civil War, but the slave trade was abolished because it offended northern sensibilities when some of these northern congressmen would come to D.C., to go take their seats in Congress, it, it bothered their, their sensibilities that there were slaves being bought and sold um, you know, on the street on the way to go sit in Congress. So anyway, this is a case where there is a significant policy issue that gets affected by the death of a president and then the accession to power of his vice president, where you've got one president standing against some sort of compromise of 1850, and then his successor comes in and happily goes along with what Congress wants. So that makes it a little bit suspicious. And then you look into how did President Taylor die? Well, officially, it's usually listed as a gastrointestinal issue. Some stories were that he went to a 4th of... He he died in July of 1850, um, I think several days after the 4th of July. And I've heard stories of he went to the 4th of July picnic in D.C., big big public outdoor picnic, and uh, he ate some food that may have been bad, and he may have died of food poisoning. And if that's the story, then there's this problem of what about all the other people who ate the same food at the same picnic? And as far as I know, there's no reports of anyone getting seriously ill, let alone dying from it. So the food poisoning thing is, is forgive the pun, hard to stomach, but... Even if it's just, well, there was some kind of other gastrointestinal bug that he got that killed him, okay, that's certainly possible given the the sanitation conditions back then. I mean, people get bad stomach bugs today, and we have much better sanitation practices than they did back then. But it's still kind of questionable, and there still have been theories over the years that he may have somehow been poisoned by people who, for whatever political reasons, most likely 
Southerners who wanted to up the odds of spreading slavery to some territories in the Southwest may have somehow poisoned him or what have you. Now, there was a test done some years back that said there was not enough evidence, at least of arsenic, that for it to have been that. But then there were people who said that that test was flawed. And, of course, my question, and I'm not an expert in this, but so you do a test for arsenic and it comes back negative. Can you definitively say he wasn't poisoned at all, right? Like there's no other poisons you can use to kill someone other than arsenic. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not an expert on poisons enough to know if you just do an arsenic test, is this going to catch other stuff too? But it's a little bit fishy. And then there was a an inquiry pretty recently into this whole thing back in, in 2010, which said, and I quote, there is no definitive proof that Taylor was assassinated, nor would it appear that there is definitive proof that he was not. So I'm going to have to list this in the maybe pile. You know, there's some things about it that are a little fishy. There's certainly not enough evidence there for me to say he was assassinated, I'm pretty sure, let alone I know for sure. But it's interesting. Now, next president to die in office is, of course, uh, good old honest Abe. April of 1865, shortly after beginning his second term, by John Wilkes Booth, who was part of a conspiracy of people to do this. As far as I know, there's no real reason to believe that there's anything more to it other than what we know. Certainly the government went overboard and indicted and punished several people who really shouldn't have been uh, punished, who weren't really in on the assassination itself, but uh, that's that's a separate issue. Interestingly, from a utility standpoint, the assassination of Lincoln was useless. It was done after the war was already over. And, of course, you have to imagine that if Lincoln had been assassinated during the war, would it have caused the Union to stop the war effort, or would it have made them redouble their efforts out of a sense of revenge? I think the latter is more likely. By the way, side note, I might talk about this a little bit more towards the end. I'm not a fan of assassination from the standpoint of trying to accomplish anything worthwhile in the political realm. And I'm generally opposed to it most of the time anyway because of sort of ethical problems. I think assassination, it's tough to say that assassination is in keeping with the non-aggression principle under most circumstances. Now, if you're somebody in Nazi Germany and you can kill Hitler, you know, maybe that's a different ethical thing. You still have the practical problem of will that actually solve the larger problems of what's going on. But um, my my point is, even setting aside the ethical questions, which in a lot of cases would prevent me from from endorsing an assassination of anybody under all but the most, you know, Hitlerian circumstances, there's still this problem of assassination usually doesn't stop the train from going on along its track, speaking of the, the train of state. And in the case of Lincoln, I think that's a good example. Andrew Johnson, his vice president, comes in and pretty much does his best to stick to what Lincoln had planned to do as far as Reconstruction. He butts heads with the Congress who think that Reconstruction, as carried out by President Johnson, is not nearly hard enough on the South. And so he's not able to get his way a lot of the time, President Johnson. But um, basically, he's following what Lincoln had indicated he was going to do. And of course, you have to imagine, had Lincoln lived, he would have been able to get that accomplished even better because of who he was that he was a Republican and that he was the president who had just fought the Civil War, he would have not faced the same problems from Congress implementing the exact same plan that uh, Andrew Johnson did. Andrew Johnson, if you don't know, Lincoln's second vice president, was a Southerner and a Democrat. He was one of these what are called war Democrats who favored the Union side of the Civil War. So when 
Andrew Johnson becomes president and starts to implement Lincoln's reconstruction plan on the South, which was fairly lenient in the eyes of some of the more radical Republicans, Congress immediately uh, fights back against it, whereas Lincoln might have been able to get away with doing the exact same thing. Anyway, next president to die in office after Lincoln is Republican James Garfield, killed in 1881, I think just under six months in office, and he was killed by a apparently deranged nut named Charles Guiteau, killed him with a 44 caliber Webley British Bulldog revolver, which I have to say, when you look at how many high-profile assassinations are carried out with, like, wildly bad choices of firearms, like how many famous people have been killed with 22s and 32s, and oftentimes, like, the junkiest, cheapo 22 and 32 pistols you can find, it always just, as someone who's a bit of a of a gun enthusiast, it always makes me wonder, like, okay, if you're planning on assassinating somebody, you have to know that you're likely to not get very many shots before either you have to flee the scene or security or the crowd is going to grab you, whatever. How many of these guys pick these very, very uh, mildly, you know, kind of pipsqueak guns to try to assassinate someone? Like, no, if you want to try and up your odds of being successful, you're, you'd want to pick something with firepower. And I have to say, Charles Gateau is one of the few guys who assassinates someone with a firearm that where the firearm at least made sense. It's a small, concealable revolver, but it's of high caliber. These were popular in uh, Britain and in some parts of the United States back then as uh, concealable but still rather powerful revolvers. Think of it as... A, a snub-nosed revolver, not much bigger than a thirty-eight, uh, snubby, but with the power of, of a forty-five caliber pistol, or at least something close to it. Well, uh, Charles Guiteau kills President Garfield with, I believe, a shot to the back in Washington, D.C. It was in a train station or some other sort of fairly crowded place. Garfield, like most presidents back then, had pretty much no security most of the time. And uh, Garfield lingered for, for quite a bit, but then died of, of the wound. And the story is that the reason Charles Guiteau, and there's a lot of evidence, by the way, that Guiteau was, was crazy, that he killed Guiteau because, or sorry, that Guiteau killed Garfield because Garfield was what was called a half-breed, which was a Republican in favor of civil service reform, in favor of making government jobs, be, have them be doled out more by merit than by party connections, the so-called spoil system, etc. Garfield was a half-breed in favor of these sorts of reforms, while Guiteau was what was called the stalwart, which is a Republican in favor of keeping the old spoil system for distributing offices, you know, government jobs and whatnot, according to, to patronage, to the spoil system. Interestingly, another example of assassination not detouring the course of the track, so to speak, that the state is on, but in fact just causing it to keep going the way it had been going. After Garfield is assassinated, his vice president, Chester A. Arthur, takes over. Now, Chester, Chester Arthur was a stalwart, and so Guiteau apparently thought that by killing Garfield, he's putting one of his guys, the stalwarts, into the presidency. And that's what happened, but then, I guess, you know, out of a feeling of trying to um, implement his, his successor's wishes, sorry, his predecessor's wishes or whatever... Chester A. Arthur, the stalwart, then helps to pass civil service reform. Now, I've not personally come across any real convincing or intriguing evidence that there's anything more to the assassination of Garfield than what we generally hear. 
So I'll leave it at that. But again, I think it's a good example of assuming the official story is true. It, it shows a few things. Number one, low nuts do exist and do sometimes succeed. But back then there was minimal security. In modern times, it's harder to imagine a low nut, a mentally ill person with no help succeeding in killing a president. At least it is to me. Number two, it illustrates that assassinations rarely lead to a significant change in the direction that the, uh, the establishment, the system, whatever you want to call it, are going at the time. So Guiteau, rather than stopping civil service reform, almost assuredly helped it to pass. Then there's Republican President William McKinley, who was assassinated in 1901, early into his second term, not long after being, um, you know, re-inaugurated. He was assassinated by a self-professed anarchist named Leon Solgals. I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that correctly. Another apparent lone nut, although the fact that he was a self-proclaimed anarchist was used back then at the time to demonize all anarchists, even those who did not advocate violence and certainly didn't advocate assassinating a president. Teddy Roosevelt, who was McKinley's vice president when he was reelected, hadn't been during his first term, by the way, and who then, of course, became president when McKinley died. Teddy Roosevelt, shortly after McKinley died, said something along the lines of, all of the issues of politics right now pale in comparison to cracking down on anarchists. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he said something like that. So is it possible that this might be something almost like a Manchurian candidate type thing, trying to demonize anarchists and get the government to crack down on them more? It's possible. It's possible. I'm certainly not going to say it's, it's beyond the, the realm of, of possibility. But number one, I don't know of any really um, compelling evidence for that argument. And number two, I'm skeptical as to how far MKUltra, Manchurian candidate type stuff was in 1901. I'm much more open-minded to those possibilities once you start getting into the post-World War II era. Back in 1901, I'm skeptical that you could uh, do a Manchurian candidate type thing on somebody. The one angle on the uh, McKinley assassination that I find interesting, at least, you know, makes you go, hmm, doesn't necessarily really prove anything, but kind of interesting is that in the late 19th century, certainly by the 1890s, if not a little bit earlier... What was starting to become much more important to American politics was not Republican versus Democrat, at least not at the high elite levels. Now, the the grassroots people and whatever, they still thought party politics were the bee's knees and were the centerpiece of what's really going on. But at the higher levels of power within the American power elite, what was really becoming more important to who you allied with, who you opposed, and what sorts of issues you uh, stood for or against, more so than Republican versus Democrat, was Morgan versus Rockefeller. J.P. Morgan's financial empire and all the families that were allied with him had developed a strong, strong rivalry with John D. Rockefeller and his business empire and all of the various families that were allied with him. In general, Morgan was a little bit stronger in the Democratic Party at this time, and Rockefeller was a little bit stronger in the Republican Party at this time. But both both guys, both blocks, both gangs, if you will, had 
men who were their guys in both of the major parties. So in other words, there were certain Republicans who were Rockefeller-oriented and Rockefeller-allied, and certain Republicans who were Morgan-oriented and Morgan-allied, and vice versa in the other party. What's very interesting is that William McKinley was, no question, very strongly connected to the Rockefeller interests. And the man who succeeded him as president upon McKinley's assassination, Teddy Roosevelt, was like was likewise very, very tight with the other faction, with the Morgans. So this shows you some switch in, in which power elite gang um, controls the president. Now, does this prove there's a conspiracy and that J.P. Morgan somehow brainwashed Leon Solgaz into killing McKinley? No, this certainly does not prove that, and I'm not trying to imply that it does. I'm just saying there is a power elite element, a dimension, that might not be obvious if you're not familiar with some of this history. You might look at it and go, well, the Republican died and another Republican took over, and at least on the surface of things, it seems like they're pretty pretty similar in policy. Um, but they were connected to different gangs within this financial-slash-political rivalry that was growing. And by the way, from at least as early as the 1890s, maybe even a little bit earlier, um, but from the 1890s through World War II, Morgan versus Rockefeller is more important to understand what's really going on within American politics, especially at the very high levels, than is Republican versus Democrat. Interestingly, the next president to die in office, there's a similar thing going on as there was in regards to McKinley dying and being replaced by Teddy Roosevelt. And of course, I'm speaking about the death of Warren G. Harding, another Republican president, couple decades later, next president to die in office. Warren Harding, of course, replaced by Calvin Coolidge. Interestingly, Warren Harding was a Rockefeller man, and he dies, and he's replaced by Calvin Coolidge, who was a Morgan man, had very tight connections to the Morgan financial empire. In fact, J.P. Morgan Jr. had a, basically a, a man crush on Calvin Coolidge, called him the greatest statesman of the 20th century and things like this, and absolutely gushed, absolutely gushed about um, Calvin Coolidge once he was president. Now, the official story is that Warren Harding died of, I believe, congestive heart failure after suffering a heart attack. He had been in office, I think, a little bit over two years, and there actually were some conspiracy theories, I think all the way back around the time that he died, that his wife may have poisoned him. Harding was quite the philanderer. We now have some letters from him that prove this pretty decisively and uh, that, that she may have killed him because of whatever, jealousy or who knows what. Or at least, um, I think the story I remember hearing is that she may have tolerated his philandering, but she may have been worried that it would become public and that that would reflect poorly on her or something like that. And so... His wife may have poisoned him, and um, I don't. I don't think there's a whole lot of hard evidence that is really, you know, proven out there as far as Harding's wife or anybody else poisoning him. And I bring up the Morgan versus Rockefeller angle not to say that that decisively proves that Harding or McKinley were assassinated um, in order to bring about that that switch, you know, between those two power elite groups, but. I mentioned it just to say it's interesting and it's an angle that mainstream history often doesn't cover. 
because mainstream history often focuses on the surface. They focus just on parties and on the um, explicit surface-level issues, and they often don't get into the more kind of power elite stuff, even though you can analyze the power elite without going off into tinfoil hat crazy land. But the mainstream doesn't like to do this. The mainstream uh, history likes to just reinforce the notion that everything important is what you see on the surface. What the mainstream media talks about at the time, that's what matters. And Republican versus Democrat, that's what matters. But that the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff of who's really um, supporting these candidates and who's really funding these people and, and pushing them to the front of the pack, who might be pulling strings behind the scenes, even though we've got a lot of proof about real cases of this going on. Well, anyway, next president to die in office, I don't think there's really anything controversial to, and that's Franklin Roosevelt, who dies in April of 1945, shortly after being inaugurated into his fourth term. But he had been sick for quite some time. I don't think there's really any anything uh, fishy about his death. And then the next president to die in office, and the last one who's done so up until now, is, of course, John F. Kennedy. Now, John F. Kennedy is, like, just his assassination is fishy 1,500 ways from Sunday. And there's no way I can even remotely do justice to the fishy stuff that's uh, in, in his assassination that kind of in and around it and all the people that have weird connections to it and so on. Kennedy's assassination is one that I can say, for damn sure that one, the official story is not what happened. Now, as to what exactly did happen and who specifically was and wasn't uh, involved in it and whatever, I I can't say for certain. I don't think we'll ever be able to do so. And I'm suspicious of anyone who does claim to know all the answers. I'm just going to um, mention a little bit about it here. I may get into it in much more detail in the future. It's one of those things. It's so huge. There's so much complexity to it. There are so many genuinely fishy things. But there's also so much whacked out bullshit swirling around Kennedy that it is, it is quite a mess to, uh, to dip your toe into. And it's one of those things I'm almost scared of, of really doing a big coverage of it. Not that I'm scared that, like, you know, someone's going to show up at my door to shoot me or whatever, but that it's just so complex and there's so many different angles to it. But here are just a few of the things that really kind of made my spidey sense tingle, so to speak. I used to be a skeptic of, of Kennedy assassination theories. I used to be a pretty staunch skeptic. Basically, I took kind of an Occam's razor view on it, and um, I didn't take a lot of the red flags very seriously that some people pointed out. And let's face it, there's some wild shit out there. There's some nutty stuff. And unfortunately, what happens is um, you're exposed to some of the truly nutty stuff that's not backed up by much evidence, and that connects dots that are not really connectable. And so then that kind of inoculates you to giving a fair hearing to anybody who raises significant questions with the Warren Commission official story. And so for a long time, I was like the Kennedy conspiracy theory skeptic, but it was largely because I hadn't seriously looked into certain things. And then sometime, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I don't even remember where I first came across a few things that tripped my, uh, my tripwires on this. But a few things revolving around the Kennedy assassination really made me scratch my chin and wonder what's going on. And some of the things that made me wonder 
um, at least initially. And since then, I've discovered other things that, that I think are fishy, too. But some of the things that initially made me wonder are as follows. One of the things that made me first wonder if any of the Kennedy conspiracy assassination stuff might be true is uh, Jack Ruby. And to me, still, to this day, that's one of the most fishy things about the whole deal, is that Jack Ruby then shows up out of nowhere and kills Oswald in a police station in front of everybody and has this ridiculous story as to, like, why he did it that's just really hard for me to believe. And then conveniently, we Oswald's out of the picture, we don't get any more uh, from him, and who who the hell knows, right? Even before I knew much about Jack Ruby's mob connections, which makes things even fishier, the story on the face of it was problematic. Just think about it. Is it really plausible, really believable, that the president gets killed, and this guy, who's just basically a strip club owner or whatever, is watching coverage of the assassination on TV, and then he is so upset, so distraught by the whole thing, that when he hears that they've caught a suspect, and the suspect is being held at a police station in town, in, in Dallas, not you know too far from where Jack Ruby lived, is it really plausible that you'd be like, hey, I'm so sad about the president getting killed. They've got the guy they're saying they think did it, but you know what? I'm not. I'm not willing to let him have a trial and uh, be, you know, convicted and executed if he's found guilty. I'm not willing for that to happen. I'm going to go down to the station with a gun and kill this man who's in custody in front of everybody. And I mean, if you had an IQ of 46 and you're Jack Ruby, you know you're going to go down for killing Oswald, right? You know you do this in front of the the media and in front of all these cops. Like, it's pretty much a virtual suicide mission, suicide in this case including um, a prison sentence, not just, you know, that the cops might kill you on the spot. And you would really do that simply based on the fact that you're, like, you know, sad about the president being killed and supposedly was upset that, like, his wife is going to... Like, really? I just have such a hard time believing that even a person who's a little bit unstable would be willing to do that for those reasons. But then when I eventually found out more about Jack Ruby, the thing became even weirder and more ridiculous. Because, for example, you find out that Jack Ruby is buddies and is connected with all sorts of prominent mob figures who hated Kennedy's guts and would have likely wanted him dead if they had been able to do it. So you got this weird thing where this guy, not only does he just up and decide to kill the guy who's in custody for killing the president, just out of the blue, but uh, he also happens to be buddies with a bunch of powerful mobsters who hate Kennedy's guts. That's problematic, to say the least. And then there's even more weird stuff about Ruby. It's been it's been years since the last time I looked into it, but... um. He said a lot of weird things later when he was in custody and the Warren Commission was doing its song and dance. He said a lot of weird things that, yeah, I know you could just say he's a nutball, but he said some things that really made me wonder. And again, it's been long enough since I read into this stuff, but I can remember reading some transcripts of him, Warren Commission transcripts, that um, he's basically making it sound like he's fearful for his life 
if he tells them the truth. And he's saying things like that he knows crazy stuff that'll blow everybody's mind. And they're like, well, tell us. And he's like, no, not unless you bring me to D.C. and give me more protection and this sort of stuff. And the Warren Commission is like, well, no, we're not going to do that. So I guess we'll never know what you're going to tell us. (laughs) And that's that's, you know, freaky as, as hell. Again, could Ruby just be a crazy guy ranting? Yeah, but you got to wonder, you know, you got to wonder what really motivated him to do what he did and what he really knew. And considering the mob people that he's connected to, it's not that far-fetched to say there's a lot more to Ruby's story than meets the eye. And if that's the case, then there's almost assuredly a lot more to the assassination itself than meets the eye. Another thing that was a red flag for me early on is... Lee Harvey Oswald's background, and I don't even have the time here to do justice to that, but there's a lot of things that are contradictory and fishy as hell, looking into Oswald's background, his military career, the fact that he renounces his citizenship and defects to the Soviet Union, and then not long after comes back in the United States and is like welcomed back in by the authorities. Um, Fishy as all hell, as are many other things about his background. Those were some of the first things that made me start to question my own skepticism that the Warren Commission uh, was not correct, not accurate, in its story of Oswald being the lone assassin with no connections to anything. And then as I looked into it a little bit more, uh, the Warren Commission, there's fishy things about it. Many things, again, don't have the time here to do it justice even, but Earl Warren himself had to be virtually blackmailed by LBJ, as later shown by LBJ's uh, tape recordings of his phone conversations. Earl Warren didn't want to chair the Warren Commission. And then the people who are picked to be on the thing, some of them are suspicious as hell, one of the most notorious, of course, being Alan Dulles. And there's some debate about Alan Dulles being on the Warren Commission and who really was behind him being on there. I think some sources indicate that that Robert Kennedy pushed for it and that that makes it less suspicious that Alan Dulles was on the thing. Other sources indicate that it was Johnson or somebody else who wanted uh, Dulles on the uh, Warren Commission. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but regardless, again, it's still fishy as hell that the president fires Alan Dulles, President Kennedy fires Alan Dulles after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, making him and many other high-ranking people in the CIA his, his avowed enemies. And then after the president is assassinated, this former CIA director who had a big feud with him, is made one of the commissioners of the investigation into Kennedy's death. It just seems like a really weird choice. Then, of course, there's all kinds of issues with the the rifle and scope that Oswald used and its ballistics, and there's reasons to believe that that scope on that rifle is not even zeroed correctly, and there's questions of the different bullets that hit Kennedy's car and him and those around him. Um, they didn't all behave the same way, so it makes it problematic that the that these uh, bullets, even if they're the same caliber, may not have been of the same construction. You know, there's one bullet that acts like a full metal jacket bullet normally would. Then the next bullet acts like a very, very lightly built uh, soft point expanding bullet, almost like a varmint round. And if you're if you're a serious gun guy and you look into it, it's really, really sketchy. A lot of the stuff regarding the ballistics of the bullets that did the the hitting and killing of those in Kennedy's car. Now, the magic bullet theory is um, one part that's probably the most famous, but there's a lot more problems to the ballistics than just that. And a fair number of people... Sorry, another rough patch in the road. A fair number of people who are, you know, serious 
gun people who've looked into Kennedy's assassination from that angle have come away believing that it does not appear that uh, Oswald did it. Even if Oswald was a shooter, he was not the shooter. And that there seems to have been another firearm firing a different type of ammunition involved in the thing. So those are just some of the things. And then as I dug more into it, you find out about this crazy, weird character I might do an episode on in the future because he's he's so strangely connected to, to different people. This guy named George de Morinschild, who was a so-called white Russian emigre, meaning he was a right-wing, harshly anti-communist Russian who fled when the Bolsheviks took over. He was living in Dallas, Texas. He was connected to prominent right-wingers who hated Kennedy, and um, I think he was also even connected to the Bush family back then, if I remember correctly. And yet he also had like a friendly, personal relationship, almost sort of like a mentoring relationship, with Lee Harvey Oswald, with this self-proclaimed communist who had supposedly defected. Um, Then suddenly, George DeMorenschild is like helping Oswald and his Russian wife get jobs in Texas and find a place to live. I could be wrong about this one, but I think DeMorenschild might have even been the one who helped Oswald get the job at the books at the book depository in Dallas. And he is a very fast, a very fascinating character, George DeMorenschild. Like I said, maybe I'll do something about him in the future, um, either a regular Dangerous History podcast episode or maybe a Patreon special. Who knows? And then a lot of things that other powerful people who might have been in the know about at least something to do with it. A lot of things these people said later are interesting as well. Lyndon Johnson later said, I never believed Oswald acted alone, although I can't accept the fact that he pulled the trigger. And who the hell knows what Johnson may or may not have known, right? There's the book by by Roger Stone alleging that Johnson was behind the assassination. That book has been on my, uh, my list of things to look into for a long time. Still haven't got around to reading it. There's just too much stuff. But um, I'll just mention it in case any of you are interested. I certainly wouldn't put it past the realm of possibility. Johnson is certainly one of the shadiest characters in the rogues gallery who have been in the White House. I mean, the guy, as far as I can tell, was just a complete sociopath and a real scumbag, too. So I certainly wouldn't say it's beyond the realm of possibility. Although, to me, and I've not read Roger Stone's book, so you know, perhaps there's things in there that would change my mind. But to me, my perception is... I think the most likely thing is that Johnson didn't know all the details of who was getting rid of Kennedy, that he was a recipient of benefit from Kennedy being killed, that he probably knew something fishy was up, but that he wasn't necessarily like the main guy driving the uh, assassination conspiracy. Also, years later, Richard Nixon, as recorded on White House tapes that recorded all of his conversations, um, expressed a lot of skepticism of the official story and said a lot of fishy things that made it sound like he knew something uh, was up. And he said things like, quote, it was the greatest hoax that has ever been perpetuated, end quote, speaking about the Warren Commission and their official story of Oswald as the lone gunman. And then also, uh, years after the fact, J. Edgar Hoover, responding to a question as to whether Oswald, in fact, did the assassination, said the following, If I told you what I really know, it would be very dangerous to this country. Our whole political system could be disrupted. Now, there have also been some interesting assassination attempts that were not successful, but nonetheless have interesting angles to the story. Don't have time to get into those here. And then, of course, there have been 
other assassinations, not of presidents, but against other powerful and influential people that are suspicious. So Robert Kennedy, his assassination, there's a lot of fishy things about that. Certainly, to me, it seems like if there's any assassin in modern times that may have been a Manchurian candidate sort of a person that was MK ultra into killing somebody, Sirhan Sirhan is a prime candidate for that one. And again, for the sake of time, I can't get into all the details about that that are questionable, but I'll just note that there are plenty of things there. Um, if I remember correctly, there's even audio evidence where you hear shots being fired at Kennedy that there are more shots that you hear than the number of shots that are held in the gun used by Sirhan Sirhan. I believe he was using an eight-shot small-caliber revolver, again, like a twenty-two or something, and there are more than eight shots fired. And he certainly didn't have the opportunity to reload and never did reload. There are also indications that uh, at least some sources said the shot that killed Kennedy came from behind. So there would be a theory that Sirhan Sirhan, who's Patsy and also is kind of running interference, again, possibly Manchurian candidate brainwashed, Sirhan Sirhan was there and was firing with his twenty-two revolver at Kennedy from the front. But that in the distraction of him doing this, somebody from behind, somebody who's more, you know, power elite connected, who the hell knows, CIA, mafia, whatever gives Kennedy what what actually is the killing shot from behind. And if I remember correctly, the L.A. coroner who did the initial uh, medical report on Robert Kennedy even said that the killing shot came from behind. There's also a lot of fishy things about Martin Luther King as we approach Martin Luther King Day. There's a lot of fishy things regarding his death that make it seem like James Earl Ray may not have been the assassin, or at least... If he was part of something, there was more to it than him. Interestingly, Martin Luther King, not too long before he was assassinated, started really publicly criticizing the Vietnam War. Now, certain members of the American power elite were willing to tolerate him doing just sort of civil rights stuff. I think there were enough people, certainly not everybody within the power elite was happy about integration, but I think there were enough people within the power elite who had kind of come to the conclusion that the time had come for a lot of these reforms, sort of desegregation, to take place. And so as long as King stuck to that and was relatively moderate about everything else and didn't really go after too many things that the establishment held dear, they let him do his thing. But then um, closer to when he ended up dying, he started much more openly publicly criticizing the Vietnam War, and then he gets killed. We do know for certain that King was heavily surveilled and harassed by the FBI's COINTELPRO uh, program, and you can check out my Dangerous History podcast episode on that if you've not already. It was a while back. I don't remember the episode number off the top of my head. But for example, we know for sure, documents have come out, that the FBI not only spied on and knew all about um, Martin Luther King's many extramarital affairs, but that they tried to blackmail him into committing suicide over this. FBI agents actually wrote a letter trying to get King to commit suicide. So the notion that somebody within high levels of the power elite and in, in certain government agencies may have had something to do with ultimately killing King is not that far-fetched considering we know for an absolute fact the FBI was trying to encourage him to commit suicide. By the way, King's son, Dexter, asked James Earl Ray in 1997 if Ray, in fact, killed Dr. King, 
and Ray said no, and uh, Dexter King said that he definitely believed uh, James Earl Ray the way the way he said it, that he thought he was telling the truth. And as far as I know, the King family generally, I, I can't say every member, but as far as I know, the kind of main members of the King family have been very skeptical of James Earl Ray being the lone assassin of Martin Luther King. And in 1999, a civil suit filed by the King family for wrongful death did conclude that King was killed by a conspiracy that included elements of the United States government. Now, that's not quite the same thing as having a criminal case, you know, convicting some FBI or CIA or whoever people from being involved. But still, that's indicative that, you know, there seems to be some issues with the official story on that one. By the way, as is so often the case, you dig into the personal background of James Earl Ray and you find a lot of interesting connections and things that, again, make you at the very least wonder. So, for example, in the late 40s, James Earl Ray was in the military and um, there's some indications that he may have even worked for the CIA in its early days. And James Earl Ray's brother, John, has alleged that James Earl Ray was involved in MK Ultra type mind control experiments uh, many years before the assassination. So, again, just, just a little fishy, isn't it? And there's some behavior exhibited by James Earl Ray that kind of fits what you might expect if someone had been MK Ultra into being a Manchurian candidate. So, for example, before the assassination took place, Ray was reported to have written certain phrases over and over and over again on paper. Phrases like, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country, and so on. Now, could this be just like a severely mentally ill guy writing the same phrase over and over? Sure. But, you know, put it together with all the other stuff, and again, it's very questionable. And of course, there's also some questionable things about the assassination of Malcolm X as well. Former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura is a guy that I have some complex uh, and contradictory uh, feelings and thoughts about. I think he's very right about certain things, but I think he's a bit too conspiratorial um, for my taste. I think he sometimes goes too far on certain things or is willing to jump some conclusions to some conclusions without quite sufficient evidence. That said, I think he's certainly right about many things. And he made an interesting point in one of his books a while back. I think it was the one called American Conspiracies. Very interesting point he makes that I had never thought about before, so I'm happy to give him credit for this insight. And that is the point that some of these people who were assassinated, these prominent you know, celebrities and leaders and things that were assassinated under somewhat suspicious circumstances, many of them were being constantly surveilled by COINTELPRO and other, you know, government agencies and things like that. And that isn't it kind of weird? They're under such intense surveillance that everywhere they go, they're being followed. All their phone calls are being recorded. Their homes are bugged. The, the FBI's listening to them fuck their mistress or whatever. That people under that intense of surveillance that a lone nut assassin can come in and do something without the FBI who are doing the surveillance, having any clue. So this is the way Jesse Ventura puts it. And I was so struck by this that many years ago when I read this book, I actually wrote, wrote down this quote and saved it. Jesse Ventura writes, quote, Isn't it interesting that for many of our public figures who've been killed, I'm thinking of John Lennon, Malcolm X, and Dr. King, 
they all seem to be under surveillance first and then assassinated later. Viewing it from a military standpoint, that would be the standard operating procedure you'd expect. Heavy surveillance to learn how you live, what way would be best to do it, how do we set up the patsy and get away with it. Look at it this way. If they're following these people around, wouldn't it turn up that somebody else was doing the same thing? But turning up the killers never happens, does it? End quote. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, point that I'd never thought about before, but it does raise some questions. Um, other people who've died, uh, perhaps more recently, under circumstances that at least some people find questionable. Gary Webb, the uh, news reporter who exposed CIA complicity in running drugs into the United States back in the 80s, who died somewhat mysteriously by uh, two shots to the head, supposedly a suicide. Michael Hastings, who died in a bizarre car wreck. This was the um, the Rolling Stone journalist who had exposed a lot of bad stuff about many people high up in the U.S. military. And there are plenty of people who say that the way his car crashed and the way it behaved and the whole thing, that there's lots of questions there. And I would certainly agree. I've not looked into that one in, in enough detail to say that, you know, I'm really strongly one way or the other. But certainly what I do know, it's fishy. I believe even uh, Richard Clark, who, what was he, the CIA director or, or national security advisor or something like that, Richard Clark actually publicly on the record said that he thought that um, Michael Hastings' death was not a simple accident. I think he even said that he thought it could have been um, a vehicle that was basically taken over and uh, run by remote control to crash it. And certainly the technology to do something like that is not at all far-fetched, is actually rather mundane and simple by the standards of what, you know, NSA, CIA-type people can do. At least some people find the death of Andrew Breitbart a bit suspicious, that he died uh, supposedly of a heart attack, kind of out of the blue. He was not that old. Again, I've not looked into that one in enough detail to have a strong opinion one way or the other, but just pointing out that some people find it fishy and there are conspiracy theories about it out there. Now, unless you think that, you know, this guy dropping dead out of the blue from a heart attack after taking a walk around his neighborhood is open and shut, clearly there's nothing there. I will point out to you that the the church committee, the Senate investigation into some of the misdeeds of the CIA, um, this committee that took place in the 1970s under Frank Church of Idaho, one of the many things they did uncover, and it's only a small percentage of what went on, it's only literally the tip of the iceberg, most of what the CIA did, we'll never know because they destroyed so many documents, but the church committee did show that, and this is back in the 70s, mind you, this is, you know, 40 years ago, and technology hasn't stood still since then, right? The church committee back in the 70s showed that the CIA had developed a dart gun that was, you know, a quiet, simple little dart gun, and a poison that was undetectable and almost perfectly mimicked a heart attack so well that, you know, no medical examiner would be able to tell that it wasn't a regular old natural heart attack. And this dart gun would fire a dart that was basically frozen poison, and it made the, just the tiniest little mark going into you, almost looked like a tiny pinprick, and then once inside of you, the dart would melt, and the poison would get into your system, and this would, of course, then erase any evidence of, you know, a dart stuck in you. So you'd be left with almost no marks. Certainly a medical examiner that has every reason to see this as a heart attack is not going to, you know, see a little tiny pinprick on your skin somewhere and think, oh, no, wait, there's something going on here. So the CIA had their toolbox, had this in their toolbox way back 40 years ago. We know for sure. I mean, I'll 
try to remember to throw a link in the show notes of YouTube clips, YouTube videos showing this. I mean, you could see, you know, senators holding this gun and talking about it on the floor of the U.S. Senate. So the notion that someone dies of a heart attack, there's nothing to see here, is not as open and shut as you think. They certainly have the means, and uh, these days they have other electronic sorts of things that can target some of your organs and things like this, and if anything, can probably kill you with even less uh, disturbance and evidence than that dart gun they had 40 years ago. Think how much your communications technology have advanced in 40 years. Now, think of what they had 40 years ago to assassinate people and make it look like it's natural causes. Do you really think they haven't put any any money into um, improving those things over the years? And, of course, now they've got the angle of drones as a way to perhaps deliver certain types of uh, of assassinations made to look like accidents or natural causes. Am I saying that any time someone who's powerful or influential or important or controversial dies, it's definitely a hit and there's definitely a conspiracy? No. It's entirely possible that, you know, powerful, important, influential, and controversial people can die just like any of us from illness, from accident, whatever. Am I saying every time there's an assassination of somebody, there's definitely a big conspiracy behind it? No. It's certainly possible that sometimes it might be a lone nut. I think that's harder to believe in more modern times, especially regarding presidents, because of security issues. I mean, a truly mentally ill person that's so scatterbrained they can't even, like, hold a job, the notion that a person like that is going to be able to pull off by themselves without even any help an assassination of a president in modern times given how much security presidents have, is is a bit tough for me to believe. Now, back, you know, in the 19th century when most presidents had, like, pretty much no security, it's a lot easier for me to believe that some nut would just one day get in his head, I'm going to walk up to the president and shoot him, and actually succeed at it. But certainly I'm not saying that every time there's, you know, some conspiracy to it. What I am saying is that in at least some of the cases, there's enough things to make you at least entertain the possibility that there's a lot more to it than whatever the official story is. So I would encourage you, when it comes to assassinations and deaths that might be assassinations, don't automatically believe the official story. A lot of these sorts of people are known liars, are proven liars. When it comes to government officials and media people, the people feeding you the official story, very often they are proven to have a track record of lies. So you would be an an idiot or just like hopelessly willfully naive if you automatically believe the official story all the time. However, however, I would urge you don't necessarily always knee jerk to the opposite extreme and say that there's always some really intricate, huge conspiracy theory, because I don't think there always necessarily is. I think these things are very complicated. They have to be treated on a case-by-case basis. Human beings generally crave certainty. And I'm someone who, like most people, used to be that way, but I've made my peace with a certain amount of uncertainty in many aspects of life. I've become more comfortable with what uh, Daniele Bellelli called in his Taoist lectures the torch of chaos and doubt. I think that's what he called it, something like that. Uh, it, was, it was a brilliant phrase that I really took to heart. And so I'm comfortable with looking at some of these deaths and assassinations and saying, I think there's more to it. 
I think the official story has some problems. I think there are some pieces of evidence that at least make you scratch your head and wonder. But I'm not willing, based on a few weird things or a few pieces of evidence that raise questions, to then say, I 100% for a certainty know that this was a, a conspiracy assassination and there's, you know, so-and-so's behind it and this is what happened. Because to me, in order to make that claim, the burden of proof has to be pretty high. So I've made my peace with many of these things. We will never know for certain exactly what happened and why. Just not going to happen. And so I'm willing to point out and entertain possibilities and point out things that are iffy. But I'm also comfortable at the end of the day saying, don't know for sure. I don't know. And I really wish more people would get comfortable with, I don't know. Because there's a lot of shit we don't know. Even in fields that you know a lot about, there's a lot of shit you don't know. Even in history, there's a lot of shit I don't know. I am by no means an expert on everything. And certainly there are things that I don't know and we're never going to know. And we need to make our peace with that. But it is true, and Murray Rothbard talked about this as well, that there is this weird thing in American history where somehow, at least when you look at the official stories of assassinations and deaths in office... American assassinations seem to almost always, according to the official story, be a classic lone nut. Be one bizarrely crazy person who, for some weird reason, goes and kills a president or some other important person. And this seems to be a mostly American thing, because when you look into assassinations, especially political assassinations, in other countries and throughout history... There's almost always a conspiracy. There's almost always some power elite faction within that country that sooner or later it's exposed were behind some assassination or assassination attempt. You know, when some president of, of Egypt or Pakistan or um, there was an assassination attempt on French President Charles de Gaulle, that later there's this, you know, big conspiracy behind it. There's almost always some sort of conspiracy to some degree or another, and yet America, magically, it's always one lone nut. And why is this? And is this really believable? So I think this is another reason to sort of take the official stories with a grain of salt and say, okay, sometimes it might be a lone nut, but I'm having a hard time believing that almost every freaking time it's a lone nut that's got no connection to any important political factions or power elite groups. I think we need to think about means, motive, and opportunity. We need to treat this the same way we would treat any other investigation. If the rich older man dies under somewhat mysterious circumstances, and it turns out that, like, not too long ago, he married some young hottie, and then, you know, rewrote his will so that she gets all of his dough, and then, you know, he dies and she gets all the dough, that the investigators looking into this man's death, it doesn't mean that the young hottie killed him to get the dough but that they wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't at least consider the possibility and at least do some basic due diligence looking into her and um, you know whether or not there might be more to the story than an old guy dying. And certainly if it turns out that the, uh, the young hottie that the rich old guy had married shortly before his death has connections to people who didn't like the rich old guy, and furthermore, if it came to light that she had uh, once previously married a rich old guy who then died shortly thereafter and she inherited a ton of money, if you could find some patterns and some, some, some problems like this, if you then refuse to look into the man's death and, and the woman's background anymore and just said, nah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, there's nothing to see here, let's move along. If you did that, you wouldn't be 
considered a competent investigator. But yet, for some reason, when it comes to this question of means, motive, and opportunity, and this question of qui bono, who benefits, in American history, as Rothbard himself pointed out, we never want to ask serious questions about the vice president and those who supported him. We don't want to look into the vice president when the president dies, even though the vice president is clearly one of the people who benefits the most from a president dying in office. Now, again, does it mean every time a president dies, the vice president definitely was behind it? Absolutely not. But it means you should at least consider the possibility. But that almost never happens in this country, and those who do raise these questions are treated like the kookiest of kooks. Now, why is this? Well, I think there's kind of two things going on. One thing, of course, is that once a president dies and the vice president gets promoted, he's now the boss. He's now the head of the executive branch, which means he's in charge of the Justice Department and all the federal law enforcement agencies. So naturally, those agencies are not going to be real inclined to ever seriously consider that the new president may have had something to do with the death of the old one. I think that's a big part of it. The way our succession works upon the death of a president makes it tough that the new president is going to ever be seriously investigated. And then there's an angle that I think is sort of dealing with the psychological aspect of the American people. The American people are not nearly cynical enough, as far as I'm concerned, for the most part. The American people, in general, tend to be, when it comes to these sorts of things, very, very naive, almost childlike sometimes. They want to believe the best about their leaders. They want to believe the best about their system. They, somewhere deep down in their guts, I think, know these fairy tales and myths are bullshit, but they want to cling to them desperately so that they can then cling to their ideas of American exceptionalism and the city on a hill and all this sort of nonsense. And they want to believe, for example, that Nixon and Watergate is this weird, isolated, one bad apple situation, and they don't want to believe that pretty much every president does things that are that bad or much worse in many cases than what Nixon got in trouble for. And so the American people would rather believe a comfortable fairy tale than find out that their cherished institutions and histories and stories are largely a bullshit facade. And if you raise even the possibility, no matter how much evidence you may have to suggest it, that some members of the government may have killed other members of the government for power reasons, that threatens the bullshit facade. And it makes people uncomfortable. And they don't respond to things that make them uncomfortable in a, in a healthy, thoughtful, mature fashion. A healthy, thoughtful, mature individual, in my mind, when they're confronted with ideas or arguments or facts or whatever that make them feel emotional distress, a healthy, mature person would say, and this is what I strive for anyway, would immediately ask themselves, okay, this information I'm being confronted with is making me feel emotional and uncomfortable and even a little bit angry. Why is that? And then do some self-reflection you know, and try and figure out, you know, what is it about this stuff that's making me feel this way? But most people just immediately want to attack the source of the discomfort. And so they just attack you. Now, think about it this way. Ideas that are really bizarrely just crazy and outlandish and are not even remotely plausible doesn't seem to me like those sorts of ideas would be the ones that are likely to um, cause one distress. The ideas that are the most likely to cause one distress are the ones that, in fact, may be true, and troublingly so. And then the last point I'll make, the last thing I'll point out, is uh, to reiterate something I already said a few times, which is, at least when it comes to American history, 
assassinations tend very much not to change the track that the state is on. Very often they tend to just accelerate it. Or if there is an alteration made to policy, it is done in such a way as to prevent, to prevent change. And as such, assassinations are more likely to favor established interests than they are to favor those who really want any substantive change, you know, to a system or anything like that. So that's where I'll leave it off. This has been actually uh, several commutes smushed together. I hope this hasn't been too rambling and incoherent. Like I said, I'm offering this as somewhat impressionistic and certainly not as any final word or definitive argument about any of these things. But just to raise these issues, I hope that you've found it interesting and informative. I hope I've not wasted your time, and I hope I've given you something to think about, regardless of where you come down on any of these specific assassinations. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether it's social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.